All right, hello everybody. How are y'all doing today? I guess got this, all the switches in the right place. Online folks, howdy. If I ever start late, it's because I'm walking around having so much fun talking to people. And if you didn't notice, the self-named corner gals, not so much of a corner anymore, but they are back in business. So there are treats and things at the back table. Please get up and help yourself. Please get up and help yourself. It's not impolite. We're Methodists. It's not impolite to get up and go for food. That's, that's just, it's just what we do. You know, so that's how we are. So I'm glad y'all are here. I notice it's raining behind me. Huh, huh. I shouldn't have listened to the weatherman last night. I didn't know it was going to rain at this time of day. But anyway, it is, and here we are. But we're nice and warm and dry in here, or at least warm enough. So, um, don't have much in the way of announcements. Um, my Monday class will not meet next Monday because it's Memorial Day, but we'll be here on Tuesday. So, that, so that's great. So, um, I think there is not, we'll be here, Patty and I have some time away in August. So for all of June and all of July, we should be here on Tuesdays just making our way through through 1 Corinthians. Okay, so let's see. Is all look good to you, Patty? It's probably a thing because I'm not getting any sound from my iPad, but I am on my phone, so I have hard Okay. I, I, think you, I think if you get the video, the audio should be there. So let's see. I'm not aware of anything else in the way of announcements. How about you, Patty? I don't think so. Like, can you make one or announce that there is no class online next Monday? Yes. Which I kind of just did, but that's okay. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. No, 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 no online class next Monday. I'm preaching Sunday at 9.30. And my class at 11 o'clock, I'm teaching. And we are starting four weeks on Revelation which will be fun. I, I enjoy teaching, preaching, revelation. I enjoy opening the book up for people and helping them see that it's a book really written to comfort and to encourage Christians not to terrify them. And it's maybe meant to terrify some other people in the world who need to be terrified, but it's meant to comfort and encourage uh, Christians who were being persecuted in the first century. So that'll be great, and please help me get the word out. I'm probably going to send a note out to my Sunday class, just making sure they know that we're going to start a little four-week series on, on Revelation. So, anything? Yes? No. No, I'm only doing the first week, and then Arthur will be back, and he will, he will pick it up. But I'm doing four weeks in my class, and we'll get through a, a four-week overview of Revelation and spend time on the pieces that I enjoy the most because I'm the teacher. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, that's how it works. That's how it works. Okay, anything else from anybody before I open us up with prayer? The red boxes are here. If you would keep the red boxes moving, that would be great. Yes, Don. I don't want to make sure that you stay. 
Well, we're not mixing church and state if we remind people to vote. So, so there are important elections today. Nothing, nothing. That doesn't mean church and state have to live on separate planets. We're we're citizens of both, but we know where our primary loyalty is. It's to Jesus. There we go. Even before the state of Texas, and I say that as someone who has a Texas birth certificate. But nonetheless, okay. Anything else? Okay, would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today on this Tuesday. We're grateful for the treats that were brought for us to share. Um, we know that you have called us into this fellowship. And, you know, Paul is just, he's just sometimes difficult. Um, and we're grateful that we're going to spend this time in the coming weeks and months to take a slow journey through 1 Corinthians and try to hear Paul more clearly and for some of us even learn to like Paul again, if we ever did. Um, <laughs> so all this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, Paul is difficult and, and he's difficult for a couple of reasons because he writes very practical things in a world that is very much unlike our own. In so many ways. This world is extraordinarily patriarchal. No woman I know wants to go back and live in that world. Not one of you want to go back and live in that first century Greco-Roman world that Paul is working in. Um, secondly, he lives in a world um, in which slavery is just part of how things are. There's nothing unusual about that at that time. That was common across all cultures around the entire globe. So it had been part of the human condition, human existence, um, maybe happens differently or, or implemented differently, but slave economies were just the way of how everything had always been. Um, but uh, all of that poses challenges to us, I think, when we come to Paul. And additionally, sometimes Paul is just not terribly clear. As you know, Richard Hayes at Duke is my favorite uh, one of my favorite Paul scholars and he, he, he wrote once that you know there's quite a few places in Paul where if if it were handed to Richard Hayes for grading he would mark it up a lot and turn it back because it's just not very clear why is it not very clear because these are letters these aren't things these aren't theological theses that Paul is spending gobs of time sitting down and then going through a careful editing process and the rest. These are correspondence. Correspondence. And so we have to remember to that. In addition, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, we are hearing only one side of the conversation. It would be much easier to understand Paul's letters and be confident about our understanding of Paul if we had both what he's responding to and the letter, both ends of the conversation. That would make it so much easier. But we don't, so there you go. We, we, do, we do the best that we can. But even with all of that, um, Paul's, um, the message that Paul is bringing to the world comes through very clearly and we will we have seen that in first corinthians and we will see it going forward so like last week what did we talk about last week 
Last week, most of the talk, most of what we talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, say 15 to 24 or so, uh, 25, was devoted to this, to this, to this, two perspectives. There's one perspective of what is great and powerful and important and significant, and that is the world's view of what is great and powerful and important and significant. And then there is God's view of what is great and powerful and important and significant. And um, because Paul is utterly focused upon the cross, he understands that the proper understanding of what strength is or what power is has to be understood through the Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. It is that that, cre that has created God's victory over sin and death, which all of our weapons of war and all of our technologies could never do, could never overcome and win an eternal victory over sin and death. But Jesus does, by his faithfulness, all the way to the cross. And so, and so Paul is constantly contrasting these two, the world's way and God's way. And it is, you know, my favorite pictures of a world turned upside down. Sometimes it's called the great reversal, where Christian theology should not meet the world's expectations. Okay? Because for, just, just think about it for a second. We're talking about the creator of the cosmos. And the creator of the cosmos decides to be born human. So in the world's mind, where would that happen? To whom would the creator of the cosmos be born? Well, I'll tell you, in the Greco-Roman world of Paul's days, that would be Rome. That would be to Caesar's wife that would be surrounded by opulence and power, military strength, and all the rest of it. And I would submit to you that there would be the same thing in our world. But no, it, that isn't it. Instead, God is born to this insignificant young woman from an absolutely insignificant village in an if, insignificant Roman province on the distant reaches, borders of the great Roman Empire. God does not meet our expectations. God wants to take our expectations and shatter them, turn them upside down. And that's so much the thrust of the early part of the letter 1 Corinthians, where, where the Corinthians are very consumed with eloquent speech and rhetoric and philosophy and lofty, lofty ideas, and the wisdom of Aristotle and, and Plato and the Greek philosophers. Paul wants to push all of that aside. Not because all of it's bad. I, I like Aristotle and Plato. But it is about God and God's way. That is the ground of true, of true wisdom. So. So that's where we were last week. The message of the cross is foolishness, right? To the Gentiles, foolishness. What sort of God would be born to Mary? What sort of God would get himself crucified? It was foolishness. So 
now in at verse 20 oh 26 oh, I'm gonna look go back to 25 that'll be our just one going back verse today <laughs> chapter 1 verse 25 for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength think right there's a world's wisdom God's wisdom we don't the world does not understand what's what true strength and power and wisdom are because they are revealed in what the cross the place of humiliation and death how could such a thing be well it just is and we would never figure it out okay we would never figure it out which we'll talk about more today so verse 26 that's new and fresh today verse 26 let me check my little podcast recording all's looking good okay I'm paranoid about these things don't know why but I am I guess I've learned from experience to be paranoid it isn't always paranoia to be paranoid okay 26 <laughs> brothers and sisters think of what you were when you were called called by whom Paul God this is all about God this is not about Paul this is all about God think of what you were when you were called not many of you were wise by human standards not many were influential not many were of noble birth <laughs> right this is just average folks as I said a couple weeks ago maybe it's kind of a motley crew just regular people well here's uh, here's the toughie this is not even this is this is not really st. Andrew st. Andrew is filled there's a lot of education in st. Andrew I would not want to even attempt to count the number of post high school years of education there are you know at st. Andrew it's just that kind of place right I mean it's this is a well-educated bunch a high expectations bunch a wonderful bunch type A, type a plus 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 yeah. right um, but in Corinth I, I told you that the, the way to think of the world their world is like the Eiffel Tower there's a few rich people not much of a middle class and a whole bunch of lower middle what we call lower middle class poor slaves and they're all coming together not many called by God um, and they're not influential there there are a few we, we meet a few who are we meet the treasurer of the city of Corinth Erastus who is um, you know a significant person in the community in Corinth but by and large they're just regular people so not many of you were wise by human standards not many were influential not many were of what noble birth but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise so think of our two buckets the things the strength and power and wisdom of the world and then there is God's wisdom and strength and power that God came to the motley crew in order to shame the crew 
of the rich and powerful. Wasn't there a show once about lifestyles of the rich and famous? Yeah, 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 yeah. I did not watch that show. Um, we didn't watch that show. No, did we? No, I can't remember anything. Lifestyles of the rich and famous. So, so, so God, again, just think of Mary. All you have to do is think of Mary. Think of all the people that God could choose to be born to. I mean, Gabriel could have come to anybody. And to whom does Gabriel come? To Mary from Nazareth in Galilee. It is a world turned upside down. And you see that repeated. This theme that Paul has is repeated in the Gospels. It is the heart of Mary's song when she meets Elizabeth. Um, in Luke chapter 1, when, while, while these two women are pregnant, um, it is the world turned upside down. So God chose the foolish things, the not powerful things, the not strong things, the weak things, the foolish things, the things that people, how foolish it would be for God to be born to Mary. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. In my experience, in my own life, it is easier to hear God well. It is easier to take down the defenses that I certainly had, um, keeping God at arm's length when things were going poorly in my life. Not when things were going well. When things are going well in your life, when you are um, think you're among the wise and the strong and the rest of it, well, you know, yeah, great. I like church. Church is nice. I like the people there. And they have nice snacks and you know, my kids like the programs there. But it doesn't get you in your heart and your gut because the defense is, ah, I'm, I'm doing pretty well, you know. But when you're in need, when you feel weak and like, what happened to me? What happened to my life? What's going on? I think those are the times when the defenses fall and you finally, a person finally quits fighting against God. It was, I've said this before, but you know, um, about my mom. It was something that my mom got wrong. Because she would, she would put down people who she called foxhole Christians. Oh, they only, you know, they only go to church. They only came to Jesus because they were in trouble. And when I was young, I thought, yeah, 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 sure, right. They're foxhole. Then as I got older, and I, much older, and I began to actually read the Bible on my own and begin to, to build some sense of it, I realized, no, that's completely wrong. That is when we come to God. That is when we quit fighting against God. That's when we're willing for the defenses to come down and just accept God's grace. So... God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not. Not what? Not, in the world's eyes, not of much worth. 
to nullify the things that are, the things that are seen by the world as having great worth. If this isn't a difficult thing for us at St. Andrew to hear, it should be. Okay? This, these should be hard, these should be verses. I know everyone wants to talk about Paul and women and stuff like that. But these are verses that are difficult for people who have had successful careers and have nice 401ks and so forth. Because, right? Um, who did Je it, It's of a piece with Jesus. Who did Jesus hang out with? Did he go find all the rich and powerful? All the well-educated in, in, in Jerusalem? Nah, he hung out with the sinners. The wrong kind of people. The tax collectors and those prostitutes and stuff, whatever, right? <laughs> it, it's, it's... We have to know that God is God and we are not. And it's not an easy thing to learn. It's not an easy thing to embrace. And so humility becomes one of the key virtues of a, of a Christian. That, and I, I know lots of people here at the church who are very successful. I know they have nice 401ks and all the rest of it. But, but they're humble. I'm going to name a name. Tom Morris. Tom Morris is materially very successful. He's got like this computer company. He sells computers to Walmart or something like that. We had a dinner last night down here with staff parish and trustees. And guess who was up helping to see that the food is put out properly, helping to open everything up, put it up, and then clean it up at the end of the meal while other people are walking out? Tom Morris. It, it's just who Tom is. He's a humble guy, and that is, that's pleasing to God, pleasing to God. So verse 28, God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? So that, right, the words like so that, Arthur emphasized the word therefore in his sermon on Sunday. I almost leaped up and started applauding, <laughs> right, because every therefore in the Bible is important. Therefore. It's a go, man, go. Verse 29, so that no one may boast before him, before whom? Who's the pronoun? God, exactly. We are called to lives of humility. Okay, and it's hard for us. It, it doesn't mean that you can't find pleasure in your achievements or your kids' achievements or anything, but all of that is the context of your, your humility before God and that you, you, if you are going to boast, that you boast about God, that you boast about what God has done in your life. And boasting may not even be the right word to use there, so that no one may boast before him, before God. It is because of him, because of God, that you are in Christ Jesus. Okay, 
So again, you always have to look at the pronouns and figure out who the pronouns are, are you know, about. And this is obviously God. And there's this phrase here, in Christ Jesus. That is a much, much talked about phrase. It's probably you, Paul probably uses it like 80 times in his letters. In Christ, what does it really mean to participate in Christ? Okay, so um, come on in. To participate in Christ, in Christo, Paul writes. I think Paul is about to give what I think is one of the best explanations of what Paul has in mind when he says to be in Christ. It is to recognize that Christ is all in all, that Christ is fully sufficient, that you truly, that you truly need no one or not, nothing else. Look what he says. It is because of him, because of God, that you are in Christ Jesus. It's not because of you, not because of Paul. It's because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. As you, which could be paraphrased this way. You want wisdom? I'll give you Jesus. You want righteousness? I'll give you Jesus. You want to understand whole, you want holiness? I'll give you Jesus. You want Redemption, I'll give you Jesus. It's all focused upon Jesus because we are in Christ. It is a way of speaking of this deep, mysterious bond that we share together. And I, I, just, I just want to say something here because there's so much press right now. Well, maybe there's, a, there's some, some press about the future direction of the United Methodist Church. And the church is clearly going to splinter. It's not just going to split, it's going to splinter. Okay? And there will be new little denominations that spring up, adding to the huge list of Methodist denominations that we already have. So, but we will all still be brothers and sisters in Christ. Just as the Roman Catholics are my brothers and sisters in Christ, even though there are things that we might disagree about, or do disagree about, as a matter of fact. The Southern Baptists are my brothers and sisters in Christ, even though there are things that we disagree about, and even though I might be terribly disappointed in them after the report from over this weekend. But they're still my brothers and sisters in Christ. The Pentecostals, the Orthodox, the Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, that's a different world, but not really. It's different in important pieces, and there are things that we disagree about, but they're my brothers and sisters in Christ. We could all, and should be ready to, stand up and say the Apostles' Creed together without keeping our fingers crossed when we do it. The fact that there are Different, you know, I drive to my brother's house out in Rockwall, and there's always this little church on a corner when I get out there. It's a free Methodist church. I don't know what that is. It doesn't really matter. And then I find out that we have a person on staff here who goes to that church, but I still don't know what it is. It's just one of those, there, there's a plethora of, 
of Wesleyan of churches and denominations who trace their roots back to John Wesley. All of the Nazarene churches, they're all Wesleyan. All the various forms of Methodist churches, Wesleyan. Um, so, yeah, we are, we are one in Christ Jesus, which is a phrase Paul uses elsewhere. And Jesus has become for us wisdom. He has become for us righteousness. He has become for us holiness. He has become for us redemption. It isn't complicated in that way. I love theology. I love to talk about it. I love to read it. I love... But the essence of it is not that complicated. It begins and ends with Jesus the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is the full revelation of who God is. He's not apart from God, he is God. And there is much that we know about God because of Jesus that we would not know without Jesus. And verse 31, Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Okay? which reiterates um, in a scripture passage the um, point in verse 29. And I'm going to get a note out that I wrote to myself out that I forgot to get out before class because I was having too much fun visiting everybody. Okay, so go to Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 13. And we're going to see where this quote, you, Paul couldn't have in mind several places in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scrolls, but he probably has in mind Jeremiah 9, verse 13. So I'm going to make my iPad. I am reading from that because it has bigger print. <laughs> Jeremiah 9, verse 13. Here we go. Huh. What? Oh, man. 24, 13? Okay, scoot down, because I'd wrote down the wrong number. How could that be possible? It was right in front of me. <laughs> yeah, very good. Thank you, Karen. <laughs> Verse 24 of chapter of Jeremiah chapter 9. I mean, really, that's crazy. <sighs> Old age is wonderful because I'm still around, but anyway, okay. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24. Thank you, Karen. Let the one who boasts, boasts about this, that they have the understanding to know me that I am Yahweh, who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. We are to know God. We are to boast in God. 
if we want to look for wisdom and righteousness and holiness and redemption, we turn to Jesus. And Paul's going to focus. It's, it's like what's happening in this first part of the letter. Um, uh, he's, it's like focusing a, what? a telescope or a microscope. And it's getting more and more. He's focusing it and bringing it down, as we'll see in just a bit. So go back then to 1 Corinthians. So, now, before we go to chapter 2, I want to see if there's any questions, anything I could, anything you'd like to chat about, anybody online, anybody in here, based on what we've done so far today. Well, what we say to people who ask about the, the, the how baptism is done is that there is diverse thought in the church about this. For the first 1,500 years, infants were baptized, as the Roman Catholics still do today. During the Reformation, there were some Christians in their desire to separate themselves from the church in the West decided that they would only baptize believers, people who were old enough, in theory, to, to, to profess their own faith. And that's what they did. And they're, the Baptists are part of that tradition that comes out of the Reformation. But for most Christians, if you were to start lining up the Roman Catholics and the other denominations that baptize infants um, in keeping with the 2,000 year old tradition that's that many more of those than those who who don't baptize infants but that's an in-house it's an intramural disagreement it need not stand in the way one bit in terms of my Christian fellowship with my Baptist brothers and sisters we might there are the things we would disagree about I'm sure Pick a bigger one. Pick a bigger one. Women preachers. I don't understand how they don't have women preaching in Baptist churches. I don't get that. So, but that is still an intramural disagreement in the Christian church. And no Baptist who knows his or her stuff is going to say, well, Y'all baptize infants. You're not really Christian. Never heard that said. What they say is, you don't have a date. Well, but, but what a more I always had a conversation with Jeannie. You know who Jeannie Smith is at the church? I had a marvelous conversation with Jeannie one time about this. She, you know what she said to me? She says, Scott, I don't have a date. I've just always loved Jesus. What a wonderful thing. Why need there be a date? I can't remember what happened a week ago. So why? There, there doesn't need to be a date. You don't have to have a flash. Goodness, I... <laughs> no. God comes to us in a myriad of different ways. Some are on a slow burn. Some do have a big flash. 
The question is, if you have a big flash, does it stick? That's the question to ask. Because we can get very enthusiastic in, for short periods of time about almost anything. So, so there is no single path. The question is, do you, are you trying to put your faith in Jesus every day? When you wake up in the morning, are you going to try to be, to be faithful to Jesus? Put your trust in Him every day. And that path is marked by certain things. One is baptism, whether done, at your in, done in infancy or done when you were eight. Some churches will do confirmation. We used to confirm at a much earlier age. You notice we now confirm eighth graders because we're trying to wait until they're old enough to actually step forward and be a Christian on purpose for themselves, not simply because their parents shuttled them to school. So the people would say that to you were just wrong, but they're still, they're still your brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and don't let them intimidate you. That, yeah, they're telling you because there are some Christians who think that you might be baptized, you need to have a date, and there are some who say, well, after you're baptized with water, you need to have some sort of baptism in the Spirit. All of that I disagree with. There is not a second baptism in the Spirit. There's just, it's, it, it's you, know, you know what it is, Charlotte? It is much easier for us by our by our nature as sinful people to be gatekeepers than to be ushers. God calls us to be ushers, not gatekeepers. And, and there's a, Jesus tells a magnificent parable about this. It's a parable where, you know, the, the, the wheat is all planted in the field, right? And so the workers come in and they tell the boss, well, okay, the weeds are growing up and in amongst all the wheat, and so we're kind of like in trouble out there. Do you want us to go out and pull up all the weeds? And the boss says, well, no. Leave it to me. I'll take care of it at the harvest. Why? Because you're going to pull up weeds as long as wheat. We are not in a position to judge where any single person is in respect to their faith in Christ. That's between them and God. I'm not anybody's gatekeeper. I'm not, I'm not here to judge any, the state of anybody's faith. Now, can people conduct themselves in ways that give me serious pause? Yes, that is true. <laughs> I can't, you know, that is, that's just the fact stack. But really, when you start to think about it, because faith is a matter of the heart, not a test you'll pass, or intellectual concept that you will grasp because it's a matter of the heart. Who do you trust? How can I know? It's easy for people to say they love Jesus and not, right? I think it's easy. I think there are a lot of people walking around who think they love Jesus. They think they put their faith in Christ, but they haven't. That's the saddest category of all. And I, I personally, I think that category is shrinking because we no longer live in a culture where everybody is supposed to be Christian. Now everybody kind of, there's no pressure on you anymore if you, 
if you say, well, you know, I just don't, I just don't need that, man. There's not really a societal pressure on you anymore, like there was when I was a kid. So anyway, don't, just, just tell them to sit down and have a cup of tea and <laughs> talk. Let's just talk about Jesus. But we're not Jesus. John's baptism, when John baptizes Jesus, he is not being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. John's baptism is a Jewish baptism, which is a cleansing, a baptism of repentance. The word baptism simply means plunging. I'm, I'm happy to talk about this all day, because boy, do people get this wrong. The word in the Greek that we use, that we bring in English, is baptizo. Okay? Baptizo in the Greek simply means plunging. As in, I, <laughs> my unruly child plunged my head under water for a minute, and I didn't like whatever it might be. It's just a word for plunging. And what John is doing in the river is people are coming to him in the great Jewish tradition of cleansing to be cleansed of their, to be cleansed and to re-embrace their life with God, to repent. But they are, not, they are not reborn into a new life, and they are not baptized in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, of course, right? So there is, in the book of Acts, an evangelist named Apollos, we meet in Acts 18, who doesn't understand the difference, just as I'm sure many of your friends don't. And Priscilla, and her husband take him aside and help him understand the difference between what John was doing with Jesus, you know, and the baptism that Jesus has his disciples do at the end of the book of Acts in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that became a standard part of how people enter the community. That's what it is. As I've said before, I guess maybe in here, it's not, it's not salvific. It doesn't create salvation, but it's, an, it, it's what we do. It's what we do um, when we enter the community. And so it's, that there's, a lot of, there's a lot of reason to talk about these things because there's a lot of, I think, misunderstandings. Now, could somebody, you know, you know, sit me down, you know, and, and go through and, and try to find all the things I get wrong. Of course they could. I'm sure there are some I, I get wrong. N.T. Wright once famously said, you know, 25% of what I'm going to tell you today is wrong. Trouble is, I don't know which 25%. <laughs> you know? So if he's 25%, I don't know where I am in that game. Yeah, it, it's, just, it's just the nature of it. But you know what? You have to get good at understanding the difference between the things that are intramural, the things that, that we disagree about as Christian brothers and sisters. Like, do I baptize infants or eight-year-olds? Those are not things that divide us. Last week we talked about Mormonism. Mormonism is so different, so different, right? That we, that it is another religion. 
people watch people these days are poorly educated they don't understand the difference and I'm talking about people who should know better between a religion and a denomination Christianity is the religion Roman Catholic Presbyterian Southern Baptist Methodist Greek Orthodox those are denominations within this Christian religion that we all share together Mormonism is outside this. That's why I made my crack last, last week about Mormonism, Mormon baptism, and Cracker Jacks. Which was, I know it wasn't respectful, but there you go. Um, so, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, not Christian. Another thing, right? So, we, we Christians have to work through, well, there are boundaries. Where are those boundaries? But inside those boundaries, there's lots of room to disagree. Lots of room to disagree about important things. The, the, the differences matter, I, I get that. And we won't settle them until when? Jesus comes back. So, anyway, anything else? Yes? Right, and so Anne is bringing up really, thank you Anne, for a difficult <laughs> subject. The subject of divorce and marriage, which is treated differently in, um, in Scripture. In, in Mark's Gospel, when Jesus talks about divorce, it's, it's just verboten, okay? In Matthew, which comes from later, when Jesus talks about it, in Matthew, it has the caveat except in cases of adultery when it is allowed, okay? And here's, here's, here's what I believe is the closest to a New Testament way of understanding this. We don't marry for convenience. We don't divorce for convenience. But because we are broken people, sinful people, sometimes marriages collapse and create the need for divorce. Maybe for the couple, maybe for the children. But it should never be celebrated. It's not a celebration. I, it, it, I, I've been through it. It can feel that way honestly but it isn't that way it isn't that way and I think as people would experience who are divorced that there is some kind of bond that endures and and that is a biblical idea as well and and um, there's a lot to talk about in the area of marriage, divorce, human sexuality in the Bible. These days, we're focused on one piece of it, right? You know, same-sex marriage and stuff. But, but that's just one piece of a much larger discussion about human sexuality, about the cre God's created order, about how we were made, 
and um, uh, I think generally I can speak in for my own life that for too much of my life I didn't take marriage seriously enough. I was married and I didn't cheat, but I didn't take marriage. I, I had no, I had no, I had no context to understand it in, right? Now I do, and that my understanding is part of what undergirds my marriage to this wonderful woman, woman Patty. And I think with our youth, we need to spend, we need to spend, if we spend as much, if Christians were spending as much time talking about what marriage is and should be, particularly the marriage of disciples. That's what I'm really having in mind, is the marriage of disciples. As we do talking about the rules of divorce, we would be way ahead as a community of, of people. And such things should not tear families apart, right? Because we're called to love one another. What does that, how is that love played out? That love is played out in how you how you live in relationship with people that you have an issue with. It's easy to do it with all being, it's easy to love all of you guys. Because I like all of you and I don't have issues with any of you. But when it comes to the people in your life that you have issues with and you have disagreements with and you have had fights with, you're called to love them and, and so I, you know, in, in families there are divisions that happen that simply should not, should not. God forgives, may we be as ready to extend to others the grace that God pours out on us. That's, that's in essence it for me right there. Yes? Years ago the Catholics didn't acknowledge divorce. Yes. Yes. I don't know if the annulment occurred during that time or not. I know later in life they, not, they acknowledge annulments after marriage for 20 or 30 years, which makes no sense to me at all. But do the Catholics <laughs> still not allow uh, divorce? No, they don't. So, so, but, okay, let's talk about this for a minute. Because this really is important to understand the nature of, 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 of marriage. Okay. And this will tie into annulment. In Genesis, in the very opening part, Adam is made and then Eve is made. And how is Eve made? Rib. She's not created out of nothing. God reaches in to Adam and pulls a rib out and fashions that rib into a woman. So the two of them begin as one flesh which ends up in two people. Do you see that? Okay. So when you go on in the opening chap two chapters of Genesis, you see that Adam and Eve are referred to as husband and wife and they are referred to as one flesh because 
the one flesh is their coming back together in sexual union, which is necessary. It's not just for fun. It's necessary. Why is it necessary? Because God looked at them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Imagine you're Adam standing there all by yourself and God says, be fruitful and multiply. And Adam's going to say, well, you know, what's up with that? How could that be? But when there is both man and woman, husband and wife, one flesh, that's the key phrase, one flesh. They come together in one flesh um, and they, in essence, now this is, this is mind-stretching, when they come together into this one fleshness of sexual union, they become a being which can reproduce. Right? I, I know they can do all kinds of stuff in laboratories now and stuff. Don't get me. When they come together, that is how it happens. They, because they return to that one fleshness, and in that one fleshness, they are capable of, of, of reproducing. And that one fleshness becomes the key to the whole thing. It is what makes human sexuality ex completely different than anything else that you would find in the animal kingdom. You might not know that based upon how sex is treated in the common culture of today, but it is, it is utterly different from everything else in the animal kingdom because it's not about the animal kingdom, it is about God. So, for example, we will come upon a passage in 1 Corinthians, I don't know, I think before Christmas, <laughs> where where it'll be, it'll be sooner, probably before Halloween. But where 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 Paul is is telling, speaking of the Corinthian men, and he's saying, "Look, I know that some of you men are going and visiting temple prostitutes, which was an acceptable pastime in their world. No no shame attached, no nothing attached to it. A man in the Greco-Roman world could have sex with anybody he wanted." so long as he or she wasn't the wife of another man. Then it was verboten. So they're going to the temple prostitutes, and Paul says to them, don't you know that when you have sex with this temple prostitute, you are making her part of the body of Christ? Why does Paul say that? Because the man and the prostitute are becoming one flesh and she is thus being pulled into the body of Christ. It's that, wow, right? In Ephesians 5, Paul says to the men, I don't think, they're, I don't think he's speaking of physical abuse, but maybe he is. It's not clear. He says to the husbands, you cannot abuse your wife because don't you understand that when you abuse your wife, you are abusing yourself. Why? because the husband and wife are one flesh. And marriage is merely the institution that carries that one fleshness. Okay? So that's why in the history of the Christian church, here's how marriage worked. That the couple would stand before the priest and, you know, let's imagine it's 500 A.D. The couple would stand before the priest. They would have the marriage ceremony. The priest would pronounce them man and wife. 
but they are not yet one flesh because their marriage has not been consummated. We're almost, not all of us, many of us are old enough to remember when that word was used sometimes. The marriage was not yet consummated. So the marriage ceremony might happen at three o'clock in the afternoon, but it isn't consummated until that night. They are, and until it's consummated, there is no one fleshness and thus no marriage, okay? So if the marriage is at three o'clock and it's gonna be consummated that night, if, you, if somebody came to them at say six o'clock or seven o'clock and said, are you married? Well, they would say yes, because that had been the whole I pronounce you man and wife, but they could also say no, because the marriage had not been consummated. There had not been that, that the creation of that one fleshness that, bi that binds the two together. So in the Catholic Church, annulment was of a marriage that was never yet consummated. Okay? I understand. But that's why in dealing with brokenness and unwilling to be as straightforward as Protestants are about simply acknowledging the brokenness that can happen and the tragedy of divorce but allowing it, the Catholics, I think, have tied themselves up in a lot of knots around annulment and divorce. But what I just laid out is the, was, was the concept behind it. And it, just to drive home, in the history of the kings of Europe and so forth, there were times when the consummation of a king's marriage, there needed to be witnesses of it in the room to prove, so that they could testify that yes, the childhood would come from that union is legitimately the child of this marriage of king so-and-so with queen so-and-so. You know, we have lost all sense of that, but we should not have tossed the baby out with the bathwater. You should not have lost the sense of the significance that is attached to human sexuality. Many years ago, Patty and I watched a special on TV. It stayed with me all this time. It was about, they were talking to middle schoolers, eighth graders principally, about, of all things, sex. These were sexually active middle schoolers. And when they talked to them, even, I remember this one boy, not a girl, what a boy said, It's just, it's, it's, it's not the same. There's, I, ha I have a relationship with this girl now. You see? He's bonded to this girl in, so in his own mind, in his own heart, in some way. And, and it is because we are not, we are not German shepherds or, you know, <laughs> Siamese cats or whatever. It's, it's, it's different. And, and that's what people have lost sight of and are losing sight of um, in our world. This was not his girlfriend. It was just one of these, hey, yeah, a, a fling that would last probably five minutes, <laughs> right? But I, I just know how teenage, teenage boys are. So, um, but it created the, because there is this bond. 
And what we Christians have to do, I believe, is to, is to recapture some of that and elevate our understanding and our culture's understanding of what human sexuality really is all about. And no, we're not, we're, 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 we're not our pets. No matter how much, how much we think we can just be that way, we're not that way. And lots of prices are paid for it. So, in any event, how did That's I get the on that? In the chapter one. <laughs> yeah, how, how can the church benefit all something that was 23 years in the Well, because they can, they, they can make, they can, the, the church can do whatever they need to do because what, what is the Catholic Church trying to deal with? The fact that there is real brokenness in marriages, right? There's real brokenness there. And the marriage really really can't continue. It might be for dramatic reasons. And so, but they use annulment because they've said divorce is verboten. I think it's tying yourself up in, needlessly up in, up in knots. So. An escape hatch. It's an escape hatch. When there would be a more straightforward way to, to deal with the tragedy of, of divorce than that. Okay, so I, Yes. Um, as you were talking, I was thinking back of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well. Who, when he met her, he said, she said, I have no husband. He said, I know, because you've already had four, and now you're living with some dude who's not even your husband. Jesus forgave her. There was no thing like, I'm going to annul this or annul that. He, she went home and, and brought everybody from her town back, and they all became, you know, Christians or had faith in Jesus and so why when Jesus forgives something why can't a church forgive something because churches are comprised of sinful people and we just we just love rules God is a God of grace and we just I don't know why that is Patty it's getting stoned the same thing they were just you know she's a prostitute what did he say get up and sin no more. That was all. There were there was no other restrictions. I'm, I'm taking. He did tell her to go sin no more. He did. Right. Yes. So, no so I'm taking my Monday class through Isaiah. What is Isaiah? What's the scroll of Isaiah basically? God saying to his people, "I cannot believe. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot believe how faithless you are, how blind you are, how deaf you are. I cannot believe the way you treat me. I cannot believe the way you chase after all these other gods." Yada, 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 for a page and a half. And then, but I love you, and I forgive you, and I'm going to save you, and I'm going to rescue you, and we're going to start over, and that's the story over and over and over and over and over, because God is a God of grace, and God is a God of love, and Paul is, would say, I'm with great confidence, Paul would say, just look at the cross. Just look at the cross, and you'll understand this about God. God does not work by the rules that we want to impose on one another, because we are really, really good at that. Right? There we go. So look at chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to make Charles get his Bible out again. He thought I was done. <laughs> Any, it kept on? Yeah. Chapter 2, verse 1. 
And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom. As I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's it for Paul. That is it. Paul has come to Corinth. He came to Corinth. He will come to Corinth. He does not do it with a show, with lots of rhetoric, with lots of flashing lights, with smoke machines and all the rest of it. No. What does he do? He shows up and, and just does what? In, ineloquently preaches Christ and Him crucified. And why? Because he knows that, that all the shows, all the fancy rhetoric, all of the great, great and powerful inspiring sermons, those are not what bring people to faith in Christ. It is the Spirit who does it. It is God who does it. There's not a preacher on this earth, including Billy Graham, who has ever saved a soul. It is God who saves souls. Billy Graham was his instrument. And many people responded to Billy Graham. Some stuck. Many did not. Because it's not about Billy Graham. It is about, it is about what God does. And for Paul, he just goes from place to place to place to place to place. Preaching Christ and Him crucified. And for Paul, that is everything. Christ and Him crucified. You know, there are, it surprises people to learn that there are significant passages of the New Testament, entire letters, books of the New Testament in which the word love does not appear. Because if you were to ask Paul or the others, well, tell me what love really is. They would just point you to the cross. There, right there. And we're going to see, I guess, I thought we were going to do it this week, but we'll do it next week. <laughs> right there, that cross, that is what love is. And, he, and, and, and when God takes the cross and the testimony about Christ and calls people it is not because of the eloquence of the preacher. And I can say, you know, I preached every Sunday for a decade here at the church, for 10 years, every Sunday. And it was, it was always, there were always surprises, you know, because sometimes I would get up and I would think, I, I did a pretty good job today. I like that sermon I just preached. But nobody else had much of anything to say about it. <laughs> There were some Sundays I'd get up and I'd say, oh man, I blew that. What a, phew, what in the world? And then person after person would come up to me and they would talk about, you know, there was this or there was this. It's God using all of that. Sometimes the most surprising ones were when I would preach the sermon and they would come up to me after the sermon and they would say, well, Scott, oh, I just loved when you talked about X. It just meant so much to me. It moved me a lot. It really just... God really, and 
I never talked about X. <laughs> but it's what they heard. God used it in God's way. So preachers have to remember that. Churches have to remember that. Churches go down a dark path if it becomes too much about the preacher or about the preacher's eloquence or the preacher's skills. You know, there's, there's a lot being written right now about celebrity preachers because the church, church in America fell into celebrity preachers up at Morris Hill and other places. And they get, they get all caught up in it and they get caught up in their, their power and their prestige and their, their position and they lose sight of, of what they were called to do. And look at the Apostle Paul. What is he called to do? I just roll into town. I preach Christ and Him crucified. There we go. No fancy eloquence. No, no fancy, you know, reasoning about it all. Just I preach Christ and Him crucified. Trusting that God will call people to Jesus. And that the Spirit will make things happen. Verse 3. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, the Holy Spirit's power. Why? So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Sermons are not TED Talks. What happens out there does not happen on a stage. It's not the theater. And I will tell you, I'll just, I'm frank with you guys always. I, I feel like I'm always working here at St. Andrew with the young people to get them out of that mindset. This is not theater. This isn't stage right and stage left. You might feel that way, but it's not. It's not a TED Talk. It's none of that. We testify about Christ, and we, and, and, and we are confident that the Spirit's power will be demonstrated, and that when people come to faith, it's not because they're attracted to the eloquence of the celebrity preacher. But they, they come, they drop their resistance to all of this by responding to God. And that can happen with somebody who you would think, you know, you would say have very poor speaking skills. As Paul clearly makes, you know, that's clearly how he sees himself. I suspect it is true. So anyway, so when we come next week, we're going to be into, we're in chapter 2. I just began it. We'll probably go back up and read through that first paragraph again because we talked about a lot of things. But you know what the good thing about gathering like this is? These things that are triggered when we walk, go through the letter, it's all good to talk about. It's all good to talk about. So. Okay, so before I close this in prayer, i got a couple things for you. One Jenny Legan's son is getting married this weekend. So we want to remember that in prayer and, and, and wish them a wonderful um, marriage as disciples in Christ. Um, also, some of you may know uh, Mel MacGyver, who's Mel's had surgery yesterday. He's doing great. Um, uh, Sharon Kerr, 
is home. She got really good uh, results from her surgery, so you know, it's 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 good. And um, Kay Richardson is home, and and she's good. she's doing pretty well. So anyway, that's it. So would you join me in the closing prayer? Gracious Lord, we come here together on these Tuesdays and. You know, we are making our way through 1 Corinthians rather haltingly, but it is an opportunity for us to, to talk about what's on our hearts and our minds. And This is the perfect place for it. I don't know what other place there really is where we can do this. And we are grateful for that. And we just pray that your Holy Spirit um, will move among us with great power and lift us up, confirm in us, um, our faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, and strengthen that faith um, because we really do desire to be genuine disciples of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Adios, online people and in-house people.